came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 30th of April 2021. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers, and he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist or particle physicist. So strap in while we zoom over to Adelaide in Australia now to get the May Sky Guide from Dr. Ian. Enjoy. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian. Now, can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the month of May? This month we have a very busy month. To start off with, we've got a number of meetings between the moon and the bright planets. Then we have, towards the end of the month, a total lunar eclipse, which is going to be a perigee supermoon lunar eclipse, as well as the Eta Aquarius meteor shower. As well, we're going to be reacquainted with some old friends. Mercury and Venus turn up in the evening sky about mid-month, and then later on in the month, Saturn and Jupiter will appear in the very late evening sky if you're feeling like being up about midnight. Cool. Okay. Well, let's go through what's going to be happening with the moon. The last quarter is May the 4th. The new moon is May the 12th, which is going to be the optimal time for looking at clusters and stars. The May 20th is the first quarter moon. The May 26th is the full moon with the total lunar eclipse, and I'll talk about that in detail. And perigee is May 26th as well. So, of course, it's going to be a supermoon. Now, perigee occurs at 9 p.m., nine hours after the astronomical full moon but for most people we don't care about when the exact astronomical full moon we just care about the when it 
rise as it's big and bright. So May 26 will be an excellent perigee full moon. Apogee occurs on May the 12th and not very particularly exciting. So now let's talk about what's happening with the planets. So our friend Mars is still visible. It's lower in the northwest sky as it has been for a while, faded considerably. It's now about magnitude 1.6, which is about as bright as Gamma Crucis, which is the third brightest star in the Southern Cross. Nonetheless, it's still in the top 50 brightest objects in the sky. Brighter than, well, it's now in terms of a magnitude ranking, it's about 24 compared to the bright stars. But still, if you're looking towards the northwestern horizon, it's still one of the brightest objects you can see uh, on the northwestern horizon. So it is still best seen an hour and a half after sunset when the sky is relatively dark. You can uh, see it relatively easily. Much later than that, it's going to be too low for the horizon to pick up. Mars is in Gemini this month. And at, on the 1st, Mars forms a triangle with the relatively bright stars Mu and Eta Geminorum and is within a binocular field of the open cluster M35. Uh, if you're out and about, remember, in April, it's going to be very close to M35 in a, a couple of days. If you've got a, a set of binoculars, of course, M35 is really only visible in binoculars given its low altitude to the horizon and also the presence of the moon. But with a little juggling, you can get all four uh, objects, Mars, Mu, Eta Geminorium, and M35 in one binocular field. So that's something you can do on the first and probably second and uh, third as well. Then on the 10th, the moon less than a finger width from the relatively bright star Bebsuta, which is also known as Epsilon Geminorium. Then following that, Mars is visited by the thin crescent moon on the 16th, and it's relatively close, only a couple of finger widths away. So that'll look very nice, both in the evening sky and binoculars as well. It's a little bit too far apart to get in wide field uh, telescope apertures, but it's very nice uh, unaided eye and binocular uh, meeting. That's great. Yeah, it is indeed. It's going to be uh, a... Uh, good uh, early part of the month uh, in terms of Mars. Now, Mercury returns to the morning twilight uh, and reasonably visible after the first week of May, although you really need a, a, a low level horizon, clear of any obstruction to see it best with a desert uh, or a, a, an ocean or lake view. Then on the 13th, the thin crescent moon forms a line with Venus and Mercury low in the twilight. Again, this will be best seen half an hour after sunset and with a level unobstructed height for, um, uh, horizon. You may need binoculars to see Venus. Now, Venus is going to be quite bright. But because it's quite low to the horizon, it'll be uh, a bit hard to see. So you may need binoculars to see it through the horizon murk. Mercury is best seen between the 17th and the 22nd, when it can be seen up for up to an hour low above the horizon. It never gets quite as high as it did last month above the horizon in the morning, but it's still a very good apparition of Mercury and uh, you should be able to see it quite easily between half an hour to an hour after sunset. Now, 
after the 22nd Mercury starts heading back towards the horizon again, where it meets rising Venus. And on the 29th, Mercury and Venus are half a finger width apart, half an hour after sunset. Again, it's best to have uh, a relatively unobscured horizon, but they're going to be about uh, a hand span above the horizon. So not too bad. And you may need binoculars to see Mercury because although it's going to be very bright from about the 13th onwards, up to the 22nd, after the 22nd, it uh, uh, dims very rapidly. But the meeting between Mercury and Venus should be very nice in binoculars. Now, Venus has featured quite a bit in the talk about Mercury. Now, it's going to be visible low in the twilight from about the 10th on. Uh, it's not going to get very high this month, but after about the 15th, even though it's not very high above the horizon, its brilliance will make it uh, easy to find in the latter half of this month. So Venus will, of course, get better in the coming months. But by the end of this month, Venus should be a, a very nice little object in the early twilight. Yep. Now, we'll go back to the morning sky. Saturn and Jupiter are dominating the morning sky and they're rising well before astronomical twilight. In fact, if they're up the earlier hours of the morning, you'll see them quite high in the sky. At the start of the month, in fact, Saturn's been rising just before midnight, but you really would have to wait until about one or two o'clock in the morning to see Saturn in any sort of form of decent light. But even though they're beginning to rise in the evening sky around about midnight, Saturn and Jupiter are best, still best to see in the early morning. Yep. So on the 4th, 5th and 6th, the crescent moon, uh, Saturn and Jupiter are going to have some nice little uh, encounters. So on the 3rd, uh, the moon and the two planets form a line. On the 4th, the last quarter moon is uh, very close to Saturn. Then on the 5th, the crescent moon is between Saturn and Jupiter, although it's very much closer to Jupiter. And finally, on the 6th, the thin crescent moon is below Jupiter, forming a line with the two planets again. So we've got a nice planet dance happening in the early hours uh, in the first week of May. Yep. Uh, this is repeated again uh, late in the month. On the 30th, the moon is above Saturn, and on the 31st, the moon is between Saturn and Jupiter. So you get two bites of the moon, moon planet massing cherry this month. So by mid-month, Saturn is rising about 11 p.m., but won't be good for telescopes until about 1 a.m. or so. But still, if you're up around midnight, if you're looking to the east, the golden object you're seeing, the brightest object above the horizon, around midnight to the east is Saturn and, uh, and later in the month it will be followed by Jupiter. Yep. And, and that, that will be about the 18th. The Jupiter starts rising around midnight about the 18th, but it's around about the end of the month, uh, Jupiter's rising about 11.30 uh, again. You won't really see it very well until much later, but uh, if you happening happen to have a very level eastern horizon and you're looking out around about uh, midnight, the very bright golden object above the horizon is Jupiter. It's Saturn above it. Very good. So that's that's the morning slash evening sky with the planets. Now, I promised I'd talk more about the uh, lunar eclipse and perigee full moon, and so I will. So this 
total lunar eclipse is the first total lunar eclipse we've had since 2018. So it's been a while and I'm looking forward to it. And it's also occurring relatively early in the evening. So you have, don't have to be up uh, too late to see it all happening. And for most of Australia, we see it from start to finish. Western Australia, the partial eclipse starts during civil twilight, uh, but the uh, total eclipse begins after astronomical twilight. Remember, civil twilight is a half an hour after sunset. Astronomical twilight is an hour and a half after sunset when the sky is fully dark. So for the eastern states, the partial eclipse begins at 1945. Total eclipse begins at 21.10. Perigee occurs at 2100 hours, just immediately before total lunar eclipse. So the moon will be at its biggest shortly before the total lunar eclipse. You may want to wait that extra few minutes if you're doing imaging because this is a relatively shallow lunar eclipse. We're only going to have 18 minutes of totality and the, the um, moon, while it will go a very uh, deep coppery colour, won't go very dark. So you'll be able to image the full disc quite well once you're in a totality. But if you still do it while there's a bit a chip of bright moon, uh, you, to pick up the dark part of the moon, you'll have to overexpose the um, bright part and you won't get a very accurate lunar diameter. This matters if you want to make a, a, a careful comparison between this uh, perigee full moon and the apogee moon in December. Yep. So... Going back to the timing, uh, mid-eclipse in the eastern states is 21.19 and you'll still have time to get back and watch the TV. You may miss out on a large chunk of MasterChef though. Totality ends at 21.28 and partial eclipse ends at 22.53. So nearly, nearly uh, 11 o'clock. Yep. In central states, partial eclipse begins at 19.15 with the total eclipse uh, beginning at 2040 and perigee at uh, 2030. Again, it's star perigee is just before totality. Mid eclipse is 2049 and total eclipse ends at 2058 and the partial eclipse ends at uh, 2223. In Western Australia, as I said, it, the partial eclipse begins just before the start of civil twilight. So, the sky will be relatively bright, but you'll be able to see the beginning of the shadow creep across the face of the moon anyway. Total eclipse begins at 1910 with perigee at 1900. Uh, again, but this, of course, occurs after astronomical twilight when the sky is fully dark. So you'll get some good totality views. Mid eclipse is 1919 and total eclipse ends at 1928, and the partial eclipse ends at 2053. If your eclipse eclipses aficionados, even though the partial eclipse has ended, you can still see a faint darkening on the moon's face as the penumbral shadow begins to slip across the face of the moon. Again, even though this is a relatively shallow eclipse and the moon is not going to get particularly dark as a very deep central eclipse, you'll still be able to see the stars pop out. And this will be quite nice, especially since 
the moon is going to be in a very nice position. It's going to be in the head of the scorpion, close to the brightest star, Acrab, also known as Grapheus, which is the third brightest star in Scorpius. The moon is very close to a trio of uh, dimmer stars, uh, Jabba and Omega 1 and 2 Scorpio, which form a triangle with uh, Acrab. In fact, if you watch uh, from before the start of the eclipse, you may see the moon glide between Jabba and Omega 1 and 2 Scorpio. You know, the moon may be so bright that it might require binoculars to see these uh, three, but it'll be relatively worthwhile. Also, it's going to be uh, reasonably close to the uh, red star Antares. So you'll have the, the coppery red moon next to the red Antares and close by an interesting formation of uh, moderately bright stars. So it'll look really beautiful in the morning. So you've got a good star field for the uh, moon to be in. You've got uh, eclipse happening just after uh, perigee when the moon will be uh, relatively big. So it will be a very interesting lunar eclipse. So get out there and have a look in now. When it's uh, coppery red, as you've described it, what's the reason for that? Uh, that's because uh, Earth has an atmosphere. When we see a total solar eclipse, for example, and the moon completely blocks out the sun's light, uh, the moon has no atmosphere. So, so it's able to completely cover the, the, uh, the sun and, and totally block the light. Earth has an atmosphere. And so the atmosphere bends the rays of the sun and scatters them. So even though most of the um, sun's rays are uh, blocked out, enough light is scattered by the atmosphere to cast this coppery light. Of course, you have zones in the shadow. So you, you, I've also already mentioned the penumbra and the umbra, penumbra being the outer uh, shadow of the earth and penumbra is the inner shadow of the earth. But even within the umbra, which is the, the, the uh, darkest part of earth's shadow, you still have this gradation. So if the moon goes through the centre of the umbra, where uh, far less of Earth's light has been scattered into, it'll be a lot darker than, out, than this eclipse where it's going through the outer part of the umbra, where there's still a bit more scattered light about. Excellent. Thanks, Ian. Okay. If that's not enough excitement for the month of May, we also have the Eta Aquarius meteor shower. The Aquarius meteor shower is produced from the uh, debris of Halley's famous comet and is uh, one of the best southern hemisphere uh, meteor showers. It's going to peak on May the 6th at three hours universal time, which unfortunately is after sunrise on May the 6th. So your best time to look will be will be after May the sixth on the, on the uh, mornings of the seventh, eighth, and ninth. Now, unfortunately, there's also going to be interference from the light of the waning moon, which is almost on top of the radiant for quite a few nights. But even despite this, we will have worthwhile rates on the mornings of the seventh, eighth, and ninth from three a.m. to five a.m. You may prefer the eighth and the ninth, which will be the best rates, where even though you're sliding off the actual peak, you have far less moonlight interference. And it also may the, the mornings of May the 8th and the 9th of the weekend, so you won't have to worry about going to work after you get up looking for meteors. Yep. 
So if you have dark skies, you should see a meteor every three to four minutes, which is, you know, not bad. You still have to wait. And again, I'll remind you that uh, you do need patience and you do need to uh, let your eyes accommodate. If you walk out from your, your house and you've had the lights on into your backyard, look around and go, I can't see any meteors. Of course, you won't. You've got to wait for at least five minutes to get your eyes dark adapted. And then you, you, you find that meteors, as I've said before, um, are like buses. You can wait ages for, for one and then a whole bunch turn up at the same time. So don't expect a meteor to come like clockwork every three minutes because it won't. You'll have little flurries and then quiet times and little flurries and quiet times. The, uh, the Eater Aquarians aren't particularly bright. You don't see that many bright fireballs, but they are good for persistent trains. So if you see a, a, an Eater Aquarian meteor, it's likely its train will, will hang around for a while. So it's, it's, they're really a very nice uh, meteor shower. On the 8th and the 9th, even though the moon is now relatively away from the uh, radiant, the, the position where the meteors appear to come from, it's a good idea to try and block the moon out with, uh, with a, a building or something after you've had a look, because on the 8th, and the, uh, 8th remember, the moon's still lined up with Jupiter and Saturn, uh, not as good as the uh, previous night. The 6th and the 7th are very good lineups of Saturn and Jupiter with the moon. But on the 8th and the 9th, uh, the, uh, the moon will be sufficiently far away. If you block it out with, with a building or a tree or something, after you've had a good look, you should be able to, uh, that will preserve your, uh, your um, night vision and you'll have a, a very good uh, a chance of seeing some bright uh, meteors. And so the best way to watch the Eater Aquarians is to loca uh, locate Jupiter and Saturn. They're, good, uh, they're going to be very obvious. As basically, aside from the moon, they're in that part of the sky, they're the two brightest objects. And let your eye rove around with that as the centre rove between the uh, north and the south. You can use the bright star Altair and the bright star uh, Pomelau as uh, guides too. Let your eye roam about that. Just don't stare fixedly at one spot so that you have a chance of picking up. Uh, if you've got to pick up a meteor out the corner of your eye, you can quickly turn and, and, and see it. And that way you maximise your chances of seeing as many meteors as possible. And that's, uh, and that's the Eater Aquarius. Uh, so as we saw, uh, May is going to be a very exciting month. Lots of planetary action, lots of moon and planet massings. Excellent uh, total lunar eclipse and uh, a really nice meteor shower. That's fantastic. Ian, thanks. Now, can you tell us, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? I do indeed. Now, when you're gazing at Mars, you may, of course, realise that Mars is now inhabited not only by a robot rover, it's also got a uh, robot helicopter. Uh, and by the time this podcast goes, uh, goes to air, the helicopter will have completed three flights. It's already completed two. They've been short and sweet, but they represent the first powered controlled flight on another planet. And the data they have produced will pave the way for future flight missions on Mars and other worlds. Now, of course, this is quite exciting, and the possibilities that the flight uh, produces are varied and exciting. 
uh, and an autonomous or semi-autonomous flyer can uh, uh, scout paths for a rover in more detail than the orb orbiters, even with the orbiters' fantastic optics. Uh, scouting ahead, finding good places to, to go, finding obstacles that you should avoid. It can also travel to sites the rovers can't reach and take images and possibly data and maybe even samples. Of course, this is limited by the fact that uh, the Martian atmosphere is incredibly thin and can't support much lift weight. But if it has a, 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 a little laser, it might be able to blast some uh, rocks and take some spectra. So you can just imagine the possibilities that a autonomous aircraft can have on, uh, on Mars. The one thing the current helicopter ingenuity can't do is fly to insight or opportunity and blow the dust off their solar panels. Simply, they're too far away. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, it's, it's like saying, oh, look, we've got a, uh, a, a drone in Australia. Let's fly it over to New Zealand to blow some dust off a, a solar panel in New Zealand. Go, no, that's not going to work. Uh, that's, uh, that's one of the biggest things that was in the NASA chat <laughs> about ingenuity. Can we fly it over to... to um, uh, opportunity and blow the dust away. And, uh, that's Mars is much smaller than Earth, but it's not that much smaller. But the, notice I said the first powered controlled flight on another planet. Uh, and that you might think that's a little bit controversial. For example, you may think that the Lunar 16 sample return mission was the first powered controlled flight. But, you know, I think that a rocket sent from an airless moon hardly counts as flight as commonly understood. Yep. But it's not the first controlled flight. It's the first powered controlled flight. It's not the first controlled flight. Uh, Emily uh, Lakdawala, uh, who uh, is a, a fantastic uh, science communicator, pointed out that uh, curiosity and perseverance aero bodies, the uh, the combination of the uh, lander and heat shields that delivered the rovers to uh, Mars uh, were actually unpowered controlled flights. This is very clever. What they did was altered the mass distribution in the descent stage and tilted the aero body so that it was not falling like a rock. It was actually generating lift and literally flying in Mars's atmosphere, not falling. And by using uh, the gyroscopes, they can change this tilt so it can accurately fly through Mars's atmosphere to the chosen landing site you know, with a quite high accuracy compared to the previous landers. Uh, now, that, I mean, obviously having a, a free-falling uh, chunk of metal uh, wobbling, uh, gliding and wobbling is not as exciting as a, uh, a helicopter, but it was the, was the first controlled flight in Mars's atmosphere. Nonetheless, ingenuity represents a fantastic milestone uh, which can, we can take the knowledge from Mars to other planets. But uh, where else will we fly? And of course, Mars's uh, sky gives us two possible targets. Venus, of course, uh, turning up late in the uh, morning sky and accompanying Saturn, Titan turning up uh, uh, relatively late in the evening sky. So both of these are much thicker atmospheres on Mars, making flying much easier in theory, but both represent rather significant challenges. 
Venus's atmosphere features crushing pre pressure, furnace-like temperatures, uh, hurricane-force winds, and clouds of sulfuric acid. Uh, it's a little bit of a challenge. Titan's at atmosphere is far more forgiving. It's a mixture of nitrogen and methane. Its surface atmospheric pressure is about one and a half times that of Earth. Uh, even though the atmospheric pressure isn't that much uh, uh, greater, it's, the atmosphere is a bit denser. But it's at the chilly uh, uh, minus uh, 179 degrees centigrade, which presents challenges of its own. While there's not too much wind down at the lower levels, uh, much higher, you can have hurricane force winds uh, in uh, Titan's atmosphere too. And of course, uh, the, the, the rem remote aircraft on Titan, which is one and a half hours away, uh, light hours away from Earth, means you have to rely entirely on uh, the uh, automated uh, flying machine dealing with everything itself. Now, Venus has already been uh, visited by aircraft, but not with power to control flight. If you cast your mind back to 1985 and the Vega mission to Halley's uh, Comet, you may not remember that Vega 1 and 2 dropped both a lander and a balloon each in 1985 into Venus. The balloons drifted. Uh, now, if that's the right word for being hurtled along at 248 kilometres per hour in sulfuric acid winds, at 53 kilometres above the surface of, of uh, Venus, measuring wind velocity, temperature, a whole bunch of atmospheric things. Now, at 53 kilometres above the surface, the, the temperature of Venus is more like that of Earth, and the pressure is about the same as if you're uh, 18,000 feet above sea level in, the, in uh, up, uh, mountain height. The balloons lasted about 46 hours in the sulfuric acid winds, whereas the landers lasted uh, less than an hour. Battery powered, the signals from the balloons were lost after they traversed uh, over uh, 11,000 kilometres, or about 30% of the circumference of the planet. They were dropped on the night side, rotated into, in, onto the day side, and were still traversing the day side when the signals were lost. The uh, balloons may have stayed intact for longer than that, of course, but we have no idea and no way of knowing. Now, of course, that's unpowered. Yep. Um, now, future Venus missions could potentially use a dirigible-style powered balloon to navigate in the winds. And uh, you could also drop them at different uh, latitudes. Another interesting possibility is that they could provide a platform for an autonomous flying vehicle, which could take off and land, uh, take off from the uh, dirigible uh, as a platform and uh, navigate further into the lower atmosphere without uh, being melted or crushed, and then return to the mothership. So we can investigate the lower uh, levels of the atmosphere, uh, even though it gets much uh, hotter, you could get, potentially get up to 200 degrees in the, the uh, sulfuric acid winds. But uh, 200, uh, 200 degrees and those pressures are, are relatively survivable compared to the temperatures on the surface hundred times that other uh, pressures a hundred times out of earth and uh, with temperatures that can melt lead so a, 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 a autonomous uh, drone based on a dirigible platform navigating uh, Venus's winds is a, a possible exciting possibility it certainly is Ian. yeah now Titan's a completely different story uh, it's cold 
Uh, but an autonomous vehicle can take off and land without being melted or crushed. When I say cold, it's almost as cold as liquid nitrogen, which presents challenges of its own. In fact, a flight mission to Titan has just been given the go-ahead. It's the Dragonfly mission where they're going to send a large quadcopter to uh, Titan. It's, it's, uh, it's a quadcopter a copter with double rotors, so it's an octocopter, if you like. Now, it's, got, it's a bit complicated how it's working. It's got a radioactive decay system, but it's not powering the quadcopter directly. It's uh, recharging a lithium-ion battery, which then runs the, uh, the quadcopter. Possibly because the, uh, simply the mechanics of trying to run a helicopter directly off a thermal ion battery or a thermal ion radioactivity battery is, is uh, a bit too complex. So because it's running off a battery, it flies uh, about 10 kilometres at a time and lands. And when it lands, after waiting a little while for the battery to be recharged by the uh, radioisotope power, it can investigate the, its local surroundings, take samples. It's got a mass spectrometer. Uh, it's going to fly about 36 kilometres an hour, which is rather pokey compared to the hurricane speed pace of the Vega 1 and 2 balloons, but still quite, uh, quite appreciable. And it will be able to uh, change its height quite considerably compared to the uh, Mars uh, copter, which has, I believe, gone uh, 15 metres above the ground. It will be able to go four kilometres wow. above the surface of Titan. Uh, and be able to uh, navigate a, a lot better. Uh, and it may do things like measure the wave heights of the, of the methane lakes, sample the uh, inverted commas sand dunes of Titan, which are probably, the, the sand is probably hydro, hydrocarbons or hydrocarbon coated ice grains. That's amazing. So that, 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 yep. It's amazing and it's really exciting, but unfortunately it's not going to arrive until 2036. <laughs> So we've got to wait a, uh, wait a while. There's three missions to Venus that are planned so far, but none of them include an aircraft of any sort at, uh, at this stage. However, the uh, extended phosphine controversy may change that. Uh, it would be very nice to have a, uh, a balloon sampler floating in the atmosphere of, uh, of Venus to be able to directly sample the molecules in Venus's atmosphere rather than trying to uh, measure, uh, trying to work out what's there from measuring uh, radiation. So we'll see what happens. Nonetheless, we may have to wait over a decade, but eventually the skies, in other words, will be humming with aircraft. We're uh, looking forward to uh, more helicopters on Mars and a quadricopter on Titan at the very least. Very good. Well, NASA's proven itself to be very flexible in its planning work. Ingenuity was more or less an afterthought that got tagged onto the mission. That's correct. They, they originally they had to completely redesign the undercarriage of the rover to accommodate the the helicopter, uh, and they did that in record time. So it's it's a marvelous piece of work. So now that they've got the proof of concept, they can uh, work on uh, better, more uh, long lasting uh, flyers and. Uh, put them to significant work. And we've already seen the quality of the imaging that's coming out from the, uh, the, the little helicopter. So uh, 
you can imagine what with uh, a, a next generation imaging system, what that little quad, the little helicopter can do. Exactly, and you'll be pleased to hear in that the operations supervisor at Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex at Tidbinbilla in Australia has agreed to do an interview with us. So for our June episode, we'll be talking about how his work is involved in pulling in the signals and the skies around Mars, it turns out, are, are full of spacecraft. There's robots everywhere up there. And his job is to, each week they talk to about 100 different, well, uh, they have 100 talks to 20 or 30 different robots around Mars. Uh, They talk to Voyager. Mm -hmm. They have a difficult job of pulling in signals from the Parker Solar Probe, which is quite close to the sun. You can imagine how difficult it would be to get a, a coherent signal from there. So that'll be a good interview coming up for us for Astrophys in June. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be really fantastic. And, of course, uh, like Ingenuity is, is relaying its messages through the, um, the, the Mars, Recon- Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has turned out to be pivotal in the success of uh, a number of these missions in guiding uh, not only guiding the spacecraft uh, uh, and, uh, and relaying the signals back to Earth. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that interview uh, very much. Very good. Okay, Ian, well, thank you very much once again. We're all set. May is going to be a fantastic month for stepping outside and looking up. And um, just do exactly that. Thanks, Ian. It was my pleasure. All the best. See ya. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!